Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. Glad you'd be with us today. Our current series addresses some of the big issue questions that a lot of times we wrestle with regarding our faith. If you'd like to check out some of the other questions that we've already addressed, you can always make sure to go to our church website, marysvillechristian.org. We believe there's value in discovering for yourself what the Bible says. Let me rephrase that. Read your Bible. Okay? Simplistic, bite-sized, bullet point. Don't forget to read your Bible. And don't forget to read your Bible because you're now an adult. Because you've got big people eyes and a little bit bigger brain than you had when you were going to VBS, let's look at what it says for ourselves. The values described this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Now, I, well, let's just read it. God has breathed life into all Scripture. It teaches us what is true. And it makes us realize what's wrong in our lives it straightens us out and is useful for making our lives whole again by teaching us to do what is right now the reason for all the alphabet behind second timothy three sixteen is because as i was looking through the different variations of of translations in scripture there were bits and pieces of a couple of different versions that just spoke clearly and plainly and so I took a little liberty and just kind of mushed a couple of them together the living bible as well as the new international readers version so that's what those letters mean behind that it didn't change anything it simply was a way of communicating in the clearest language possible why being a regular reader of the bible can make a difference in your life now, we've tried to encourage reading the Bible to be a part of your regular routine this year especially, and if the years slip by already, you can always pick up at any time because God's still there. He's still waiting for you and can still use the Scripture to breathe life into your life. He can still use the Scripture to show you what's working in your life and what's not working in your life. We've got, you know, a couple of different reading plans. There's a chronological order, a, a topical printer. As a matter of fact, Mark, would you wave your hand right there? There you go. Right by Mark's elbow, there's a basket with a pink label on it. And if you're looking for a printed copy of a reading schedule, you can swing by there and pick up some of those on your way out. Or if you've got your, uh, your phone or your, your computer, you can download a free app called Uversion, and there are reading plans available on that. And the last one is uh, one at Brandy. Brandy, would you mind just kind of doing a little bit of that? If you want to learn more about a Facebook group of reading through the Bible, you can make your way up afterwards and talk to Brandy about that. It's a one-year chronological Bible with MCC, and so there'll be different observations and comments that people can make about what they read that particular day in the Bible. You see, reading the Bible is always an eye-opening experience. It doesn't matter how many ways you read through it. It doesn't matter how many times you read through it. I can promise you this. There will be some point when you just kind of sit back in your chair 
and blink a little bit because you've just seen a principle or a story that you've never seen before. And that's part of that maturing process. And you're always going to have new questions about what God does, how God works, every single time you read through some of those stories. And that honestly brings you one of the questions, the whatabouts that we get to. Because if God's supposed to be unchanging, then why is God in the Old Testament so different from God in the New Testament? Have you thought about that? Have you wondered about that? I mean, in the New Testament, God's all about love and joy and grace and peace and sprinkles, you know, as some have talked about. You know, he's all about good stuff, right? But the God of the Old Testament's a scary God. I mean, he's like angry elf God, you know? He's just, he, he's, he's extreme and he's harsh and, and you're just never really sure which God you get to find that day. At least that's one of the questions you have as you read through and see some of those differences. For example, God chooses a guy named Moses, you may have heard of him, right? To rescue his people from slavery in, in Egypt. Moses doesn't want to go, he resists, but finally God persuades him and he reluctantly agrees and he goes back to Egypt and he does everything God asked him to do. He confronts Pharaoh, let my people go, they do, the Red Sea parts, the, and then you know, closes up on the army that's chasing him, about to overtake him. He endures the people, and they're questioning, and they're whining, why do we have to come out here? I'm hungry. Can we stop yet? Are we there yet? All that's in the Bible. You have to put your own inflection into the words, but it's there, right? So he has to deal with all of that. And then, and then the one time, the one time he loses his temper and he doesn't obey God exactly, God bans him from the promised land. And it's like, geez, God, what are you doing? Is that to God? Can I count on that God? And there was another guy. His name's Uzzah. Not really sure what family name created that, but Uzzah was his name. He's, he's attending the Ark of the Covenant. It's God's sacred thing. And he's helping to bring it back to where it needs to be. He's doing a good thing. He's doing a God thing. They've got the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. It's being carried or pulled by a couple of oxen or eight. I don't know how many. Anyway, there's oxen. They're pulling the cart. And one of the ox trips. And he kind of lurches forward. And the cart, you know, kind of lunches forward. And the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy, sacred thing of God, starts to look like it's going to fall off. Now, if it's your responsibility to walk beside this ark and you see that thing just about to bite the dust, what are you going to do? You're going to do what everybody else in the world would do. You're going to reach out and try to stop it from falling, doing a good thing, right? And bam, God kills him on the spot, trying to do a good thing, trying to do a God thing. The only problem was God said, whatever you do, don't touch the ark. This would probably be a good point, just to, just to remind you, not every natural inclination we have honors God. Just because you feel like doing something, or you think it's the right thing to do, doesn't necessarily mean it's what God wants you to do. But the thing that really messes with our mind the most is when God orders His people to wipe out entire nations. 
You remember the Jericho thing, you know, where they march around the Jericho wall and the wall, you know, they do that for like a week and then the walls, you know, come tumbling out. It's a great story for kids during VBS. There's lots of role play. You can get everybody involved, give them some horns, you know, let them shout a little bit. You know, teachers in VBS love that, right? Kids do too. But then you read this from Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. The walls fall down, they go in to attack it, and it says they devoted the city to the Lord and completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. And then it gets a little strange. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. What'd they do to make God mad? Why did they deserve that? And he didn't say fly a drone over and just drop a bomb on them from 10,000 feet above. This is hand-to-hand combat. This is... Let me help. Christian, I need your help. Stand up. You'll do great. I promise. Okay? Sword, right? He says kill them with their sword. This is not... 10,000 foot drone stuff. This is look in their eyes, see the terror, see the anger. We're trying to kill each other. Don't. And it'd be easy, right? But I mean, this is up close stuff. And thanks. God says, What do you, I want you to do this. Wipe everything out. And we read that now and we think, I don't want to kill him. Why would I want to do that? Why would God ask me to do that? My guess is they won't be teaching that part of the Jericho story in BBS this year. Does God have a split personality or what? Is he kind of like that schizophrenic guy in the old movie Ski Patrol? Maybe you remember this, where he had two different personalities going on. What What about the God in the Old Testament? Can you depend on a God like that or not? I mean, we hope he's in a good mood when we pray, and if you're, if you're repenting and asking forgiveness, you certainly hope you get the right side, the New Testament side of God, not the Old Testament kill them all type of God. That's the type of stuff that makes people wonder, what about God? You know, everybody loves Jesus. He's all Jesus loves the little children, right? Who doesn't love that Jesus? Instead of the Old Testament God that says, get him. The Christian author, Tim Keller, makes this observation. For those who question what about that kind of God, he says this, to stay away from Christianity because parts of the Bible are offensive assumes that if there is a God, he won't have any views that offend you. Well, the reason why that rings true to us is because we assume that God's going to do what we want him to do. And the problem is God refuses to play along. If he were an actor in Hollywood, we say, well, he's difficult to work with. 
because he doesn't always play the role that we want him to play. We think that God's always going to agree with us because he thinks like us, right? And we're right. We know what's right. So God wants what we want, and that's the way we think it is. So he'll answer my prayers like I think I should because he probably wants the same thing I want. Good things for me. But here's a classic example of, again, some of the things that make people uneasy about God in the Old Testament, that difficult actor that doesn't always do things like you think he should. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 and 17. The Good News translation says it this way, but when you capture cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and here's this weird Old Testament God thing again, kill everyone. Completely destroy all the people, and then it names all these nations that sound like funny names to us. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Yes, and throw the termites in there as well. That's, you've already gone there in your mind, I might as well say it out loud. And he says, do this because that's what the Lord ordered you to do. I don't know about you, but when I read through that, that sure sounds like God is ordering genocide, doesn't it? How do you reconcile that with other scriptures that describe God as love and mercy and grace and forgiveness? I want you to find reassurance, though, in this. First of all, it's not uncommon for the official record of the nations to exaggerate their wins. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. In Joshua 10, verse 40, Joshua conquered the whole region, the hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes, as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Okay? Great victory, right? But when you read the rest of Joshua, you realize that he, he himself realized that he hadn't literally killed everyone. All he was trying to communicate was this. When we went to war... We kicked our tail. We did a good job. Even Joshua knew that there were living survivors. Because at the end of his life, in his farewell address to the Israelites, he warned them about the survivors, the Canaanites who didn't die when they captured the land. Listen to what he says in Joshua 23. If you turn away from him, Speaking of God. So he's warning his people. If you turn away from God and cling to the customs of the survivors of these nations remaining among you. And if you intermarry with them, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land. Now, did he have a thing about marriage? Was it a racial thing? What? Listen. Instead, he says, there'll be a snare and a trap to you. There'll be a whip on your back. There'll be thorny brambles in your eyes. And you'll vanish from this good land that the Lord your God has given you. Joshua warns them about life among the surviving Canaanites. He knew that they weren't wiped out. Now, it's not just that Joshua was a pathological liar or he wanted to make himself look better than he did. All you need to know is this. Here's the thing about God. Some nations deserve God's judgment. And they deserve that judgment because of their worship of false gods. 
God wanted Joshua to destroy the Canaanite religion. And he would do that by driving out as many of the Canaanites as he could and their influence instead of wiping out the people. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, idol worship is described as being inspired by demons. And Canaan was full of demonic idol worship. Listen to how it's described in Deuteronomy 20, verse 18. This will prevent the people of the land from teaching you to imitate their detestable customs in the worship of their gods. He knew how vulnerable his people would be. He knew how strong the temptation would be to do what everybody else around them is doing. And he says, if you do what everybody else around you is doing, if you live like they live, if you worship the idols and the demonic gods that they worship, understand this, God considers that to be a sin that is deeply grievous to him. You see, God always wanted to protect his people. That's why some nations deserve God's judgment, because of the bad influence that they would have on his people. Now, when you look back in history and some of the archaeological discoveries that they've made since then, it's confirmed that the people there in the land of Canaan worshipped idols, false gods, and they did so. I mean, things just got weird, okay? We're going to worship our God with incest. We're going to worship our God with bestiality. We're going to worship our gods by offering our children as sacrifices on an altar of fire. Now, the curious thing is not that God used the Israelites to bring his judgment on the Canaanites, but why in the world did he wait so long to do it if that's the kind of stuff they were messed up in? Here's the interesting thing about God. Before you get too nervous about him, it was back in Genesis that God promised Abraham that he would make his family into a great nation. He said in Genesis 12, verse 3, all the families of earth would be blessed through you. But it was years later then when Abraham and his wife Sarah were still childless. And God said, it's going to be through your kids that I'm going to bless the world, right? And Abraham and Sarah are understandably beginning to doubt God. As a matter of fact, he says in Genesis 15, how can I be sure, O Lord, that I'll actually possess the land that you promised? Now let me insert this in here. The land that God promised Abraham was the land of Canaan. So God appears to Abraham in a vision, and he renews his promise to him in a pretty graphic way. And he says, your descendants will be oppressed as slaves for four years hundred years in a foreign land but I will punish them and then in Genesis 15 verse 16 he finishes that promise with this after four generations your descendants will return here to this land and he's talking about the land of Canaan I'm going to bring your descendants back here to this land. And he says, the reason why I'm going to wait for four generations, the reason why it's going to take so long, is because the sins of the Amorites, 
who lived there in the land of Canaan do not yet warrant their destruction. God knew it wasn't time yet. And God knew it wouldn't be the right time for a long time yet. And that's the good side of kind of a scary God is because he knows that even though this nation deserves judgment, I'm going to wait. And that's good news because here's another thing to know about God. God provides opportunities for nations to escape their judgment. God waited four hundred years before coming in judgment against that Canaanite nation. In Romans 1, he kind of describes that same principle when he says God reveals his presence through his creation, so there's no excuse. In Romans 2, he says that God would give people a conscience so that they would be able to distinguish between right and wrong. And that certainly was also true even in Canaan all those centuries before. I mean, think about it. When a demonic priest would demand an innocent human sacrifice in idol worship, wouldn't you think that a young couple who had just given birth to their first child would intuitively know that killing that baby was not the right thing to do? Wouldn't somebody begin to question, you know, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. I mean, how does a husband convince his new wife that they need to kill their first baby? God says, that conscience, that comes from me. And even when it took 40 years of wandering through the wilderness for Joshua and, and the Israelites to finally get ready to cross the Jordan and attack Jericho in Canaan, God used that 40 years to convict the Canaanites so they might change. Look at how it's described in Joshua 2. Here's the intel report that Rahab, an innkeeper, gave to the, Canaanite, uh, to the spies about the Canaanite people when they invaded. She tells them, we're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. That was more than 40 years ago. And all they've been talking about for more than 40 years, news travels, this is what their God did for them. And their conclusion was, if their God did that for them, what are we going to do? She says, we know what you did to Sihon and Og and the two Amorite kings that are east of the Jordan River whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. And then the last thing that's said is, no one, no one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. They knew about God. They knew about Israel's God, and they knew that they were no match for that. And if they'd known that for all those years, do you see God giving them time to get their head right and their heart right? Let me ask you, 
How patient is God with you? <laughs> Maybe the better question is, how patient do you hope God is with you? We all need God's patience. But it's not just so that we can prolong the inevitable. We all need patience because we all need time to get it and to get our life straight, to get our heart straight, to get our act together. We all need patience just like they did, and that's the kind of God that they serve. You remember the rest of Rahab's story? She swore allegiance to Israel's God. She's the one who said, we know what God has done for you. We know that God is the supreme God. She swore her allegiance to that God, and according to Matthew's genealogy, she's included in the genealogy of Messiah because Jesus was one of her descendants. One tribe of people in the land of Canaan was called the Gibeonites. They were so aware of Israel's God that they actually tricked the Israelites into signing a treaty with them just to avoid being beaten in battle. And when they were asked why they did that, here was their response in Joshua 9, verse 24. We did it because we were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you this entire land and to destroy all the people living in it. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you. They knew about God, and God waited to bring judgment to them. So we know this much about God. Some nations deserve judgment. We know that God is patient in bringing judgment. But we also know this, that God is morally consistent in opposing wickedness. He doesn't play favorites. He decides when a nation's ready for judgment, even if it's his own people, Israel. He decides when a nation has reached the point of no return. He's the one who decides when a nation's ready for judgment. He's the one who reveals himself to them over and over, sometimes for decades, sometimes for centuries. He's the one who's patient while giving them a reason to repent. And when they refuse to worship him in spite of his patience, and they continue in what can only be described as wickedness, he is the one who will make the call. You're done. Not us. God. And it still makes me a little uneasy about God, right? Well, would you feel better about God if he used a famine to bring judgment on a nation? Would you feel better about God if he brought a flood with a rainbow? Would you feel better about God if he brought plagues, two plagues, three plagues? How about ten plagues like he did Egypt? Or would you feel better about God if he just used another nation like Assyria or Rome? Or Israel to destroy them you see here's the deal these stories are part of a much bigger story and this is it God intends to save all nations Israel wasn't necessarily God's favorite nation 
Israel was just his chosen nation to save all other nations. Remember what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12? I will use you to, be, to bless all the people of the earth. God never planned for Israel to be against every other nation. It's not like Israel was going to be this massive war machine. But instead, he chose Israel to use Israel to save all nations. He chose the descendants of Abraham to be the lineage of the Messiah who would come to redeem the world. It was his intention to drive out all false demonic idol worship from the land, and that would clear a path for his people's acceptance, for his people's devotion, for his people's worship of the Messiah when that Messiah would finally come. It was in the book of Psalms, in chapter 87, verse 4, that their worship songbook actually predicted this idea. I will count Egypt and Babylon among those who know me. Even Philistia and Tyre and even distant Ethiopia, they will all become citizens of Jerusalem. A worship song in Israel praised God for the day when every nation would be part of his people. It would be in Matthew 15 that Jesus praised the faith of a Canaanite woman, actually, who asked Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus says, I haven't found faith like this anywhere in Israel. You see, God wasn't necessarily against the Canaanites. He was against the idol worship that they were involved in. And when anyone, even a Canaanite, put their faith in God or in his Messiah, he honored that. The Bible doesn't talk about two different gods. The Bible tells the story of one God. And that one God is at work all throughout the entire Bible to reconcile us to him. The Old Testament talks as much about the love and the mercy of God as the New Testament does. And the New Testament talks about the coming wrath and judgment of God as the Old Testament does. Now you may or may not have ever had the thought cross your mind, are there two different gods, one for the Old Testament and one for the New Testament? And if that's the true, then you probably felt like this morning was a waste of your time. But there will be people that you'll talk to. There will be people who watched this message online who have wondered that. Why is God so different? Well, let me wrap up with just a few absolute truths, though. When you wonder, what about God? And you kind of struggle to overcome some of those doubts. Here's the first one. There's an unchanging God who will come in judgment. And when he does, that judgment will be fair. Someday, when God knows it's the right time, even if it's 40 years, even if it's 400 years, when God knows it's the right time, Christ will return in judgment on sin. That much we know to be true about the one God in Scripture. Peter would describe it this way in 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. He's being patient for your sake. That's the one God that you've got questions about, that you've got doubts about at times. 
that God is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. The heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. The very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Don't miss that last phrase. Everything on earth will deserve God's judgment. There will come a time when God knows it's the right time that he will judge and it will be fair. But you can also know this about God. God has not delayed, or excuse me, God has delayed his judgment. He has not and is not denying judgment. You see, the real question kind of looks like this. How could God be true to his character of justice if he never judged sin? But a second question is, how could God be true to his character of love and not save sinners? The answer is found in remembering this third truth about God, the one God of the Bible who doesn't change. God took our judgment on himself, and he did so out of love, and it wasn't fair to him. That's the simple storyline of an unchanging gospel about God. God created us because God is love, and because he's love, he had to share that love with someone. Satan, on the other hand, lied to us. He baited us, and he trapped us. He persuaded us into doubting that God loves us and can be trusted to tell us the truth. And consequently, when we reject God and embrace the lies and the doubts of Satan and rebel against his love and his will for our life, our relationship with God is broken. And someday, he'll hold us accountable in judgment. But the gospel message, the good news story of that, though, is this, that one night in Bethlehem, a baby was born. One night in Bethlehem, angels rejoiced. One night in Bethlehem, shepherds heard angels' message and gathered in awe and worship of a Messiah. God so loved the world. You've heard that verse, haven't you? That he sent his only son to be our Savior. He was called the Lamb of God because he offered himself to die as punishment for sin, a sin that he didn't commit. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 25, God sent him to die, don't miss this, in our place. To take away our sin. And if you're just not used to thinking about things you've done as sin, let me tweak that just a bit. God sent him to take our place and die for what you messed up. 
we receive forgiveness through faith in the blood of Jesus' death. And God did this so that he could judge people fairly and still make right anyone who has faith in Jesus. I may not be able to answer any or all of your questions that you have about doubting God. But let me encourage you to run those reservations about God through this one filter. Whatever doubts you have about God, know this one thing for sure. He took the penalty that should have been ours. David, I want you in a praise team join me on stage. Some of you who are basketball fans may recognize John Wooden's image here. It was a UCLA basketball coach who won 10 national championships until the University of Dayton beat their winning streak. Love that game. They won 10 national championships. The year was 1942, though, before he was ever a basketball coach. And we were in war. He and other young men at his church had signed up for the army. They were about to leave. And before they did, the preacher gave each one of them a small cross. John kept that cross throughout the war and when he came home, when he raised a family, and when he started coaching, he still hung on to that cross. While coaching, one of the things that made him unique is he seldom screamed or made a scene. He didn't throw chairs across the floor like some in a nearby state are known to do. Typically, all you saw, though, was this. Angie, would you mind one more time putting that picture of him up? He would be on the sideline clutching a rolled-up program. And it's not because he didn't know his players' names. But he would later admit that what we never saw was that cross inside his hand that held the program. What makes me the man I am? I've always held on to the cross. There will come a day when each one of us will step forward into eternity before God. And because of His cross, because of His blood, because of His scars that should be mine, just like Rahab, just like the Canaanite woman with the sick little girl, we'll be welcomed where we don't deserve to be because of the wonderful grace of Jesus that's greater than all of my sin. That's why Colossians 1.27 offers this encouragement. It is Christ in you that is our hope of glory. And that's why our focus at MCC of learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus in how we live needs to be constantly in our mind, constantly on our heart. Because it's Christ in us where we find our hope. If you're looking for hope, if you're looking for guidance, if you need somebody to pray with you, about something one of our elders will meet with you there's a room here to the side got the little maroon sign on it, it says prayer room they'll be happy to meet you there 
and share the love of God with you while the rest of us now stand. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at barrysvillechristian.org.